Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the wilds of Connecticut in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, I am Michael Black, your host for Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go, which is what everybody has always been clamoring for. And then now here I am doing it. Truly, truly good of me to do so. Uh, And when I say doing it, guys, I mean, (laughs) old Jude and Arabella. Last time we saw them, they were on uh, the top of a hill in solitude. And there's a nice phrase here. They were in absolute solitude, the most apparent of all solitudes, that of empty surrounding space. They're on the top of the hill. They've just been chasing that pig, yo, because, you know, the pig and pigs in general have come to represent our basest selves in this book. Pigs, pig entrails and pig offal being flung about and now a pig leading them to solitude and they are at the top of this hill. And guys, guys, listen to me. I think they're about to do it. I mean, <laughs> all signs are pointing in the direction of Jude and the comely wench Arabella about to get it on and they gonna get freaky oh they gonna get freaky and you know jude has not had much in his life up to this point he's had some books and he's had uh some hopes but he's never had that puss out we don't know about Arabella. We don't know what her history is. But uh, she's. She, we've learned that she was maybe a little bit more naive than we originally thought. And maybe more naive than her two friends who were like giving each other the old wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing when they were when Arabella was saying, but 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 how do I keep how do I keep my guy? And they were like, <laughs> and it seemed like what they were saying is, bitch, you get yourself preggers and then he'll do the honorable thing. So we don't know. We don't know what's what's going to happen here. But it does seem like, at very least, 
they're going to do it. So they're at the top of this hill and Arabella is just like splayed out. You know, she's got her petticoats on, but she is basically splayed. And Jude is kind of looking over at her like, you know, like you see in Merchant Ivory films or he's sort of laying on the grass beside her, his, his hand up on his elbow and he's gazing down at her. And Arabella says, oh, I can see such a pretty thing up this tree, said Arabella, a sort of a caterpillar, one of the most loveliest green and yellow you ever came across. Where, said Jude, sitting up. You can't see him there. You must come here, said she. And we know what she's doing here. She is just reeling him in, right? And when I said the petticoats were on, I mean barely. They're just going to fall off, I think, in a minute. He bent nearer and put his head in front of hers. No, I can't see it, he said. Why, on the limb there, where it branches off, close to the moving leaf. There. She gently pulled him down beside her. And then Jude still thinks this is about the caterpillar. And it is, of course, but not the caterpillar that she's pointing at. And you know how caterpillars transform, sometimes into butterflies, sometimes into raging phalluses. I don't see it, he repeated the back of his head against her cheek, but I can, perhaps, standing up. He stood accordingly, placing himself in the direct line of her gaze. How stupid you are, she said crossly, turning away her face. Well, I don't care to see it, dear. Why should I? He replied, looking down upon her. Get up, Abby. Why? I want you to let me kiss you. I've been waiting to ever so long. She rolled around her face, remained a moment looking deedily aslant at him, then with a slight curl of the lip sprang to her feet and exclaiming abruptly, I must mizzle, walked off quickly homeward. Jude followed and rejoined her. Just one, he coaxed. Shan't, she said. He's surprised. What's the matter? He doesn't get it. Like, Jude, my dude, a kiss is fine. And she desperately, you know, she wants the kiss for sure. But, you know, she she presented herself to you uh, in as tidy a little package as you can imagine. And he's like, well, but, but where's the caterpillar? You know, for all your book learning, you dumb. She kept her two lips resentfully together, and Jude followed her like a pet lamb till she slackened her pace and walked beside him, talking calmly on indifferent subjects and always checking him if he tried to take her hand or clasp her waist. Then they descended to—so she's playing the primrose here, and he's just, he's just stubbed his finger on her thorn, do you see? Thus they descended to the precincts of her father's homestead, and Arabella went in, nodding goodbye to him with a supercilious, affronted air. I expect I took too much liberty with her somehow, Jude said to himself, as he withdrew with a sigh and went on to Mary Green. No, stupid! You didn't take enough liberty with her! God, Jude, you're stupid! 
My word. She, all she wants is that poor, wretched Jude Diak, and you couldn't even give her that. I don't think he knows. He doesn't know. He's so sweet and innocent. He doesn't know anything. He is a pet lamb, isn't he? No wonder he's obscure. I confess, most of my life, probably all of my life until I was married, I was the same. Like, I didn't understand uh, cues, these kinds of cues from women. But at least I was thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like, I was thinking, oh, how can I sleep with this girl? Because that's what I really want. But I was so kind of meek about it and shy because I didn't want to overstep that I would miss just blatant cues. Uh, You know, in retrospect, that's not the worst thing in the world. But at the time... It, it made for a lot of frustrating evenings. Let's take a quick break. This is Obscure. Welcome back to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. Let us return to the text. On Sunday morning, the interior of Arabella's home was, as usual, the scene of a grand weekly cooking, the preparation of the special Sunday dinner. Her father was shaving before a little glass hung on the mullion of the window, and her mother and Arabella herself were shelling beans hard by. A neighbor passed on her way home from morning service at the nearest church, and seeing Don engaged at the window with the razor, nodded and came in. She at once spoke playfully to Arabella. I see thee running with him. Hee hee. I hope tis coming to something. So the neighbor's like, hold on, I gotta sneeze, guys. I don't know if there's ever been a sneeze on a podcast. (laughs) That was my first. So the neighbor is coming into gossip and being a little turd, and she's going, I see you running with him. Hee hee. I hope he's coming to something. Arabella merely threw a look of consciousness into her face without raising her eyes. He's for Christminster, I hear, as soon as he can get there. So she's saying, she's written him off. She's saying, I can't even play with this boy. Like, that's not, I'm not even going to waste my time. There's like a great R&B song in here somewhere. There's a great Rihanna song or something. She's just like saying, he's all about that school and I'm all about that dick. And if he can't get with me, then I don't have time for him. She's all about female empowerment here. She's like, dude, you do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm done with you. I don't know if that's female empowerment either to say all I want is the dick. I suppose that's that's probably not right. In the Rihanna song, she would be the one going to school and he would be the one just trying to get some. And she'd be like, boy, I ain't even playing. I got to go to Christminster to get my doctor of divinity. And then I'm going to rise to infinity. Have you heard? Oh, 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 I see. (laughs) I got it all wrong. (laughs) So 
it's not Arabella who's saying he's for Christminster. It's it's the neighbor. And then Arabella goes, have you heard that lately? Quite lately? Asked Arabella with a jealous, tigerish indrawing of breath like that. Oh, no, but it, it has been known a long time that it is his plan. He's only waiting here for an opening. Ah, well, he must walk about with somebody, I suppose. Young men don't mean much nowadays. Tis a sip here and a sip there with them. "'Twas different in my time. When the gossip had departed, Arabella said suddenly to her mother, "'I want you and father to go and inquire how the Edlins be this evening after tea. Or no, there's evening service at Fensworth. You can walk to that.' "'Oh, what's up tonight, then?' "'Nothing. Only I want the house to myself.' Oh, she's trying to get rid of her parents, right? She's like, um, no, nothing. I just, I have, um, you know, I have things to do. She's going, he's shy, and I can't get him to come in when you are here. I shall let him slip through my fingers if I don't mind much as I care for him. Oh, it is fine. We may as well go since you wish. So her parents are like, all right, look, I mean, if you need the house to do what you got to do, like, we'll go, yeah, I mean, we'll give you the house. I remember when I was in high school, uh, my senior year of high school, I had a girlfriend and uh, her mom used to let us have sex in her house. And it was like no big thing. And I always thought, whoa, this is insane. Like, I feel like I remember a time when like, like we were in bed together and her mom like came and we weren't doing anything, but we were in bed together. Her mom came in like to ask like some question and my girlfriend answered and then her mom's like, okay, cool. And then, and then she left And my mind was blown that it could be so cash with teenagers and parents and they're diddling. And I guess, you know, that's what's going on here. I mean, it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. I'll be honest. Now, I've got my own kids right now, teenagers, and they are not allowed to have sex in my house. Not that either of them are having sex, to my knowledge. They're probably both doing it like rabbits, and and I don't know. Now I got bummed out thinking about my kids having sex. If you're listening, kids, please don't be having sex. The joke here, of course, is there's not a chance my children are listening. FOJs. Something I like to pretend that one of you has asked me, Michael... Do you really like Lisa mattresses? Because if that had actually happened, it would allow me to tell you that, yes, yes, I do like Lisa mattresses. Here's a true story. My producer recently got a Lisa mattress, and she tells me, she's telling me right now, she's, she's, you can't see her, but she's behind the glass wall, and she's screaming at me through the glass wall that she has never slept better. A total upgrade from her previous attempts at a good night's sleep, which basically involved several glasses of wine and reruns of Chopped. Now, she just sleeps on Elisa, and it gets better. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That is more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it. But it doesn't stop, guys, with donating mattresses. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell, and they are committed to planting one million trees by 2025. Why wouldn't I like Lisa? Why wouldn't? My dear producer, like Lisa, you sleep well lying on a superior mattress and you sleep well 
knowing you helped do something good in the world. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash obscure. That is lisa.com slash obscure for $160 off. Lisa, a better place to sleep. Hey, everyone. A brand new season of Raised by TV comes out this week. Raised by TV is the show, is the shoe. It's the shoe where John Gabris and Lauren Lapkus revisit the worst and the best of 80s and 90s TV that they grew up on. So you got your, you got your SNCC, you got your TG. Now I have to confess, they grew up, they're slightly younger than me. So their 80s and 90s is slightly later than my 80s and 90s. But I know most of this stuff, TGIF, cereal commercials, uh, snacks like Airheads and Totino's pizza rolls, which we used to have for New Year's Eve, like as a special New Year's Eve treat. It was the greatest thing in my life. And they have some of your favorite stars from that era as guests like Ryder Strong, who played Sean Hunter on Boy Meets World. And now season three is coming up and John and Lauren are, are, are back and they're talking about more of the TV shows and the characters that warped their minds. This season, they're covering, I mean, these are this is big stuff, guys. They're covering Saved by the Bell. They're covering The Bachelor, which is uh, the French pronunciation of The Bachelor. Uh, Veronica Mars, they talk to guests like voice acting legend Greg Griffin, Matt and Bowen from Los Culturistas, and workaholics Anders Holm. And if you are a Stitcher premium subscriber, you can start binging the new season early. Listen to Raised by TV now, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And I'm just going to throw in a personal plug for Lauren Lapkus, who is one of the funniest people in the world. So thinking about sex in Jude and even my kids has got me filled with questions that I am frankly not equipped to answer. But you know who is? You know who is? I happen to know a sexpert, uh, the great Dan Savage. Why don't we give him a call? Hey, you've reached Dan Savage's cell phone. Feel free to leave me a message. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Dan. It's Michael Ian Black giving you a call to talk about Obscure. How are you? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, well, the, the, the part that I want to ask you about, our hero, Jude, is a luckless chap in uh, late 19th century in England. He meets this gal named Arabella, who is basically giving all indications that she's a terrible person trying to trap him into marriage. And, and I have a certain amount of sympathy for her because she's a pig farmer in the 1800s who does not have a lot of social mobility and she's just looking to survive. Now, they're about, they're about to uh, kind of consummate their relationship 19th century style by sitting next to each other on a park bench. Well, they've they do, they, oh no, they've done that, and now they're about to fuck. Um, okay. <laughs> and I, it, it called to mind just they're fairly young, and it called to mind my own thinking about uh, my own children who are now 17 and 15. Wow. She basically said to her parents, "Hey, could you guys go to church this Sunday and leave me the house with Jude because I want to." She didn't say it, but she basically implied, I want to trap this guy, or I want to fuck this guy and therefore trap him. And they're like, yeah, cool. We'll go to church, do whatever. And I, it reminded me of my own high school 
girlfriend's mother who used to let me sleep over at her house unbe- kind of unbeknownst to my own mom. And uh, I was wondering what your stance is on that. Like, how do you be a cool, like, what's the right line to draw for a, for a cool parent? And as you know, Dan, I'm an incredibly cool dad. <laughs> well, I like to think I am too, but I, the, the ultimate judges of whether we're cool parents are our kids. And I don't think anyone's... <laughs> no. No man is a hero in the eyes of his valet, and no parent is cool in the eyes of their kid. Uh, it is very Euro, um, very sort of uh, Dutch, uh, Norwegian, um, to allow your teenage child's uh, lover, boyfriend, girlfriend, non-binary friend, to sleep over uh, rather than them, you know, fucking in cars or right. furtively having sex, like sex under mom and dad's or dad and dad's roof where there are parents who can uh, intervene if something goes terribly wrong. Right, like if, uh, dick, if your dick breaks. If your dick breaks. <laughs> or, you know, more darkly, if there's violence. Oh, oh no, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But also, if they're in the house and you know they're having sex and they know that you know that they're having sex and a condom breaks. Right. Like having parents there who can drive you to Walgreens to pick up Plan B... I would rather be the parent who drove to Walgreens to pick up Plan B than the parent who became a grandparent eight and a half months later. Uh, My twenty-year-old son lives with us still, right? Uh, as children do these days, there's something aberrant about that. You know, kids live with their parents until they're fifty now. Um, <laughs> And his girlfriend sleeps over. Right. And, you know, we have conversations about that because, because you know, we're not in denial about the fact that he's sexually active, and nor would we ever, you know, we weren't the kind of parents to be in denial about that sort of thing. Have conversations like, all right, so what kind of birth control are you using? She has an IUD. Great. Did you see it go in? Wow. Those kinds of conversations. Wow, that's a dark conversation. That's, uh, that's the territory of this book. She's, she really just wants to get pregnant. Is that still a thing that happens where women are trying to trap dudes with pregnancy? Is that a common thing? I think it's a risk if you're in the NBA. <laughs> I don't think it's an enormous risk if you're just some schmo. Now, is, there, is, is there any way to know or to have a sense that your kids are having sex if they're not telling you they're having sex? I think every parent should assume their kids are sexually active because the stats show that most teenagers are. There are fewer teenagers now who are sexually active than there were 30 years ago. We talk all the time about like the, the problems of internet pornography, but one of the things that people theorize might be uh, responsible for lower rates of teen sexual activity is the ubiquity and the availability of pornography. Right. That kids who used to be knocking each other up are home uh, cranking one out instead. And we should all be grateful to the internet pornographers of the world for that. But but most kids are sexually active uh, in their teens. And so if you're a responsible parent, you want to err on the side of the assumption that your kid is one of those kids who's sexually active. And then have conversations with them about birth control, about consent and male entitlement and the way women are socialized and girls are socialized to defer to men and how that can lead to what seems like consent being granted by someone who is actually not wanting to do anything. That but as a boy, was, as a teenage boy who is so unsophisticated in the world that they, they, they can't, they, they're terrified to even ask a girl out, how are they supposed to understand the subtleties and nuances of a girl saying yes when she means no? 
make damn sure it's yes. When I lost my virginity, I think I'm going to I'm going to pat myself on the back about this because I was in a committed relationship. I was young. I was 15. Me too. Same oh, really? Age. Mm-hmm. And we ta- we really talked about it for probably six months or a year before we decided to go forward. And both of us kind of vacillated. Like I would be the one saying, I think we should. Then I would be the one saying, I think we shouldn't. And it, I felt like it was a really healthy conversation. And then when it finally did happen, it was still terrible. But I felt like emotionally, we were both kind of in the right place for it. Can I ask you a, a weird question? Sure. And I might even know the answer to this already. Were you a masculine kind of English boy? <laughs> well, talk about a leading question. My <laughs> God, Dan, of course I wasn't a traditionally masculine type guy. I think that helped because like the, the, the teenage boys were hung up on their masculinity and, you know, projecting their straightness into the world. Um, often feel this burden and you know it's weird to talk about those sorts of teenage boys as being burdened or insecure but they are burdened with this this concept of having to be good at this and know everything right like the, the burden is mastery and if you're not like tapped into that kind of identity because you're excluded from it um because you know because of who you are you're less likely to be you know have everything fucked up for you by having to pretend that you know everything and you're good at everything you don't have to ask any questions and you know you're excellent at this sex thing that you've never done uh, because any like any manifestation of, of weakness or insecurity can bring the whole masculine temple tumbling down. And this is Jude's problem: is that he's actually he's he's sort of the uh, he's really passive in this relationship, and she's doing everything she can to basically coerce him into sex. And he's so naive; he doesn't even get it. Like he doesn't even understand what she wants. I wonder if in a weird way like that doesn't happen in a contemporary way too, where guys are afraid to say. Guys are afraid to say no. Yeah. And, and that's not to discount that there are girls out there who are voracious. <laughs> well, yeah, um, sure. It, it's a funny thing being the parent of a son and a daughter because everybody asks about my concern for my daughter's sexual, sexual well-being, although they don't phrase it like that. But nobody ever asks about my son's. Well, I don't think that's misplaced, actually, that concern. Women and girls likely to be victims of sexual violence. Yeah. Sexually transmitted infections pass more easily from male to female than female to male. And the, you know, consequences of an unplanned pregnancy fall more heavily onto the girls' shoulders than the boys. Your son's not going to get pregnant unless you're, well... Some <laughs> he's not. Boys are trans, and they could get <laughs> I, pregnant. You have to be I, very careful to asterisk everything. Right? These days no, I feel, I, 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 I feel very comfortable in saying my son is not going to get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> if my husband isn't pregnant by this point, your son is never going to get pregnant because <laughs> we have been trying. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time, Dan. Thanks. Great talking, you, Michael. You too. Bye. Let's get back to the book. In the afternoon. Arabella met and walked with Jude, who had now for weeks ceased to look into a book of Greek, Latin, or any other tongue. I could make a joke about tongues and doing it and all that, but I will abstain. I can make a joke about abstaining, but I will pull out. They wandered up the slopes 
until they reached the green track along the ridge, which they followed to the circular British earth bank adjoining. Jude, thinking of the great age of the trackway and of the drovers who had frequented it, probably before the Romans knew the country. So Jude... (laughs) I mean, how do you not love this guy? How do you not love this guy. He's walking with this girl. He has basically given up his dreams. He's not, he is, and he's walking along with her and he's basically just thinking about like earthworks. You know, he's just thinking about, I mean, he belongs at Christminster, doesn't he? He belongs with the frock of the ministry about him. And yet she is just working her wiles. Up from the level lands below them floated the chime of church bells. Yes, the subtle reminder of where Jude should be going. Presently, they were reduced to one note, which quickened and stopped, right? It has all but stopped for Jude. Jude is essentially sentencing himself here to that life of obscurity. It is just that one moment right? That one moment that we all have, that one choice that we make where we just fuck it up for ourselves somehow. We don't know that we're doing it. We think we're doing something good, but we look back on our lives at a certain point and we go, oh yeah, like I probably shouldn't have drunk half a bottle of vodka and then gotten in my car. That may have been the moment where I screwed things up. And so this is Jude's bottle of vodka. She's his vodka, you know, and uh, he gets the shakes when he's not with her. And, 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 and his dreams, the church, Bell Chiman, reduced to one note, which quickened and stopped. So she's got her silence. She's got the silence of the church bells and she pounces. She says, now we'll go back, said Arabella, who had attended to the sounds no shit. Jude assented. So long as he were near her, he minded little where he was. When they arrived at her house, he said lingeringly, I won't come in. Why are you in such a hurry to go in tonight? It is not near dark. Wait a moment, said she. She tried the handle of the door and found it locked. Ah, they are gone to church, she added. And searching behind the scraper, she found the key and unlocked the door. So the church bells that she was hearing were the sound, the cue that her parents had arrived. And that is why she so closely attended them. The church bells I am hearing are the sounds of his dreams fading away. And we have to be honest here. Thomas Hardy has not created a sympathetic female character here in Arabella. Like, he's really made her out to be a whore. I just don't know how, how else to say it. I've been, I've been dancing around the word. I've been trying very hard. But she's just a conniving her. And I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. She doesn't have a lot of options in her life. She is worried about her own obscurity. She is worried about dying the daughter of a pig farmer. But in trying to realize her own dreams, which I guess just involve a certain level of security, what she's doing is robbing his. Better, methinks, would have been if she'd been like, look, Jude, like, let's work on this together. Let me help you. Let us realize this dream of yours together. What would be more secure than like marrying a frickin' bishop or whatever. Because in England, right, they can, they're they're Anglicans. They can marry, they can marry all day long. 
All they're doing is getting married there, the Anglican uh, churches. You know, they're just getting, all the priests getting married to ladies, you know, having a, a side piece, like doing everything. Like, I don't think they take a vow of celibacy in the Anglican church. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to know about it. I don't think anything involving him and his career would have prevented him from marrying her. She's just so nervous about losing what she thinks is her only opportunity at some measure of happiness that she's willing to do anything, even if it destroys him. And searching behind the scraper, she found the key and unlocked the door. Now you'll come in a moment, she asked lightly. We shall be all alone. Certainly, said Jude, with alacrity, the case being unexpectedly altered. Indoors they went. Did he want any tea? No, it was too late. He would rather sit and talk to her. She took off her jacket and hat, and they sat down, naturally enough, close together. Don't touch me, please, she said softly. I am part eggshell. Or perhaps I had better put it in a safe place. She began unfastening the collar of her gown. What is it? said her lover. An egg. A cochin's egg. C-O-C-H-I-N. I guess that's a bird. Cochin? A cochin's egg. I am hatching a very rare sort. I carry it about everywhere with me, and it will get hatched in less than three weeks. So she's carrying around this little egg. She's carrying around a fertilized fucking egg with her. Thomas Hardy, you do not need to lay it on so thick every single page. I love you. Tom, I adore you. You know that. But come on, man. Not everything has to be, like, spelled out. You're just spelling it out. Oh, no, I have this egg that I'm carrying because I'm a, I'm a mother bird, and it's going to hatch. And, uh, you know, I have to take off my clothes because of this egg. And he goes, where do you carry it? Just here. She put her hand into her bosom and drew out the egg, which was wrapped in wool, Outside it being a piece of pig's bladder. Of course it's wrapped in pig's bladder because pigs are sex and ache is birth and her bosom is her bosom. And this is just all going down. Once you mention the pig's bladder, guys, it's all going down. She wrapped it in a piece of pig's bladder in case of accidents. Having exhibited it to him, she put it back. Now, mind you, don't come near me. I don't want to get it broke and have to begin another. Why do you do such a strange thing? It's an old custom. I suppose it is natural for a woman to want to bring live things into the world, she says. I mean, come on. It is very awkward for me just now, he said, laughing. So at least, at least he understands, right? At least he understands what the hell she is saying. And he says, well, that's very awkward. I mean, you're showing me an egg from your tits, you know, a tit egg. And you're saying, well, you know, ladies just want to bring babies into the world. Oh, and my house is here and you're here and my parents are off to church. And oh, I don't know. But please don't touch me. Please don't throw me in that briar patch. 
It serves you right there. That's all you can have of me. She had turned round her chair and reaching over the back of it, presented her cheek to him gingerly. That's very shabby of you. You should have catched me a minute ago when I had put the egg down. There, she said defiantly, I am without it now. She had quickly withdrawn the egg a second time, but before he could quite reach her, she had put it back as quickly, laughing with the excitement of her strategy. Then there was a little struggle. Jude making a plunge for it and capturing it triumphantly. Her face flushed, and becoming suddenly conscious, he flushed also. They looked at each other, panting, till he rose and said, One kiss. Now I can do it without damage to property, and I'll go. But she had jumped up too. You must find me first, she cried. Her lover followed her as she withdrew. It was now dark inside the room, and the window being small, he could not discover for a long time what had become of her, till a laugh revealed her to have rushed up the stairs, whither Jude rushed at her heels. And that is the end of chapter 8. And so we're left here with... With a lot of foreplay, you guys. So much foreplay. All right, why don't we take a little break here on Obscure. Do you like funny stuff? You do. I know you do, because you're listening to this podcast about a tragic book. What's, what's comedy, after all? Tragedy post-time, right? Comedy. So if you like to laugh or you're a fan of improv comedy in general, Big Grande's podcast, Teacher's Lounge, is back for season seven, available exclusively on Stitcher Premium. What is that? It takes you inside the minds of four disgraced teachers from Hamilton High School as they explore new career paths. In season seven, the hosts try something a little bit different from their former jobs of teaching children. They become counselors at a summer camp. And so what what is so cool and fun and funny about this podcast is that it constructs this totally, fully realized world in audio, and they're just improving it. They're just creating it as they go. And Big Grande's Teacher's Lounge pulls this off with remarkable flair, a word I don't use nearly enough. Listen to Teacher's Lounge now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash teacher and use promo code obscure for a free month of Stitcher Premium. It doesn't get any better than that, guys. You get the free month, you get the hilarious podcast, and you get the and you get the chance to use a promo code. What's better than using a promo code? Literally nothing. Welcome back to Obscure. We just finished chapter eight. Shall we go on? Shall we continue a bit to see what happens? because I think we know what happened. The only question is, does he describe it? Or I suspect not. I mean, look, this is the 1890s. He's not going to, he's not going to get more explicit than he already got. It was some two months later in the year and the pair had met constantly during the interval. Yes, I suppose they probably did. Arabella seemed 
dissatisfied. She was always imagining and waiting and wondering. Yeah. She's like, am I pregnant or not? Like what's going on? Like, I don't, it, like, it's not even clear whether she's getting any pleasure out of this from the first paragraph. You know, they're doing it all the time. They're getting together. They're hooking up. And all she's thinking about is, okay, well, where's my coaching egg? Like, is, you know, I've got it in my bosom. Is it going to hatch? One day, she met the itinerant Vilbert. Oh, you know I love Vilbert. The quack doctor like uh, Henry Hill. She, like all the cottagers thereabout, knew the quack well, and she began telling him of her experiences. Please, Vilbert, prescribe a female pill. Arabella had been gloomy, but before he left her, she had grown brighter. That evening, she kept an appointment with Jude, who seemed sad. I'm going away, he said to her. I think I ought to go. I think it will be better for you and for me. I wish some things had never begun. I was much to blame, I know, but it is never too late to mend. So he's regretting this. He's regretting that they've been living in sin, essentially, that they've been waka, waka, waka uh, for the last two months. And finally, his conscience is eating at him, and maybe he's going to get back to his Greek and Latin. Arabella began to cry. How do you know it is not too late? She said. That's all very well to say. I haven't told you yet. And she looked into his face with streaming eyes. What? He asked, turning pale. Not. Yes. And what shall I do if you desert me? Oh, Arabella, how can you say that, my dear? You know I wouldn't desert you. Well, then. I have next to no wages as yet you know, or perhaps I should have thought of this before, but of course, if that's the case, we must marry. What other thing do you think I could dream of doing? I thought, I thought, dearie, perhaps you would go away all the more for that and leave me to face it alone. So she's not pregnant. She's just fucking lying here. She's just lying to his face. She's been waiting, wondering, like worrying, like she wants to be pregnant. She's like, that's all she's been trying to do, but she's not. And so he's like, I got to cut this off. She's like, I'm pregnant and you got to marry me. And he's like, well, of course I will. He doesn't even think about it. He's such a good guy. And she sucks. She, I mean, she really does just suck. Doesn't she? better. You knew better. Of course, I never dreamt six months ago or even three of marrying. It is a complete smashing up of my plans. I mean, my plans before I knew you, my dear. But what are they after all dreams about books and degrees and impossible fellowships and all that? Certainly will marry. We must. That night, he went out alone and walked in the dark, self-communing. He knew well, too well, in the secret center of his brain, that Arabella was not worth a great deal as a specimen of womankind. So he knows, he gets it. He's like, what did I do? Bro, bro, what did I do, bro? I hooked up with this chick, bro, she got pregnant, bro. And now I'm like, I'm trying to do the right thing here, bro. But come on, we know who she is, bro. The bro's going like, Jude, you fucking idiot. Jude, you're such a fucking idiot. Bro, I know, bro, but she wanted me, bro. 
Yet, such being the custom of the rural districts among honorable young men who had drifted so far into intimacy with a woman as he unfortunately had done, he was ready to abide by what he had said and take the consequences. For his own soothing, he kept up a factuous belief in her. His idea of her was the thing of most consequence, not Arabella herself, he sometimes said laconically. So I'll stop there. So he's, he's saying, I don't care who she is. What I care about is my idea of who she is. And that's what he's going to strive to uphold his idea of who she is and who he is. And we know, guys, look, here in the 21st century, we know marriages always go well under these circumstances. I mean, that's the one thing you can count on when you get married is that if she's pregnant and you don't think much of her, that's a marriage that's built to last. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, first of all, is she even going to get pregnant? Because she's not at the moment. She talked to Vilbert the quack and Vilbert's like, don't even sweat it, baby. Like, I got you. I got female pills. You just shove them right up there. You'll get pregnant. And she's going, so, I, you know, I got my man. We're going to get married. At some point, I'll get pregnant. And then we'll live ever after. Notice I didn't say happily. We'll live ever after. So it's a lot to take in this episode, you guys. Uh, Jude has popped his cherry. And uh, now it appears that he's trapped. Tune in next time on another spellbinding episode of Obscure, Jude the Obscure. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedrin. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Mesa. Spanish Aki Presents.